Open your Bibles, if you have them, to, to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36 is where we're going to be this morning. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. I have uh, several children myself, and, and they cannot imagine a better reward than a trophy. That is, at the top of their list, they can't imagine anything better than that. When I was a kid, you know, I competed in, in sports and things like this, and, and at the end of the season, it, I'm unfortunately one of those people in that generation who got a participation trophy. Okay, I'm just going to own that. I'm just going to just say that. Amen. You got some amens. Okay, good. I'm not alone. All right. I got a participation trophy. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you won. You got a trophy. Your team got a trophy, uh, unfortunately. Now, if you won, you got a bigger trophy. So there was some incentive to try really hard. But if you think about it, regardless of where we are in life, whether we're children or whether we're adults, there is some kind of trophy that we work towards. There's some kind of reward that we want. It might be a promotion at work. It might be a number of different things that we strive for. The point is we want a reward. And ultimately, the, re- the real reason we want those kinds of things is because we want recognition. We want glory. We want praise and adoration. We want someone to acknowledge our worth. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to talk about the motivator of our life, the chief motivation of our life, the real purpose for which we are created. And it's not our glory, but the glory of another. Let's look in Romans eleven thirty three 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a moment to consider the text that you have put in front of us this morning, I pray that you would open up our minds that we may understand. Lord, I know that this passage has many complexities to it, and I pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom to know it, to seek it out and to really take it into our hearts that we may not only understand it, but we may apply it to our lives and live by it. I pray you would help every single person in this room understand your word and apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, we're quickly approaching the end of this series of sermons on the DNA of the church, where we've been basically over the last few weeks examining all the aspects of the church that are really fundamental to its existence to help us understand who we are and why we do what we do. And so if you're joining us for the first time and perhaps maybe you plan on joining us for more, I would recommend you go back and just listen to at least this series uh, of sermons so that you can understand maybe a little bit better of how we got to the conclusions we got to. As I refer back to things that we've talked about before, make comments about things that I've already said, it might help you understand a little bit more about where we're going. Now, what I've attempted to do in this series on the church is to see um, basically the church and sort of reverse engineer the structure of the church, rebuild it essentially, look at it from the outside and then work our way toward the inside. We've considered everything from the nature of the church as we step back and just look at this picture of the church. What is this thing we call the church? Then as we dive down deeper into it, what are all of these components that make it up? A few weeks ago, considering its membership, kind of like the sheetrock of the walls. And then last week, the leadership, like the studs that support the walls and things of that nature. But all of this 
would be for naught if we didn't stop to consider the purpose for which the house was built in the first place. Why are we here? What is it that we're actually supposed to be doing? And the purpose of the church, and discovering the purpose of the church, might be the most important aspect of it all. Because when we see what the purpose of the church really is, it tells us a great deal about what we then do. And it explains to us why we do what we do. Remember at the beginning of this whole series, I said that discovering who we are will tell us a lot about what we do. And the intention of this sermon, you might say, is the whole, sermon, the whole series is coming down to this sermon, is to really drill into the purpose of why we exist as a body. I, I want you to, to, not that you don't every week, but really try this morning to dig down deep with us and really investigate and, and think about the things that I'm saying. When we start thinking about the reasons why we exist, it can get kind of heady, right? It can get a little bit philosophical. And, and, and typically inside a church, there are usually at least two groups of people. There are the people that love philosophy and theology, and they love thinking really deeply about things. And so they're willing to go deep in some areas. And there's some who are like, I don't care anything about philosophy, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds. And so I understand that, but at some point we need to come down and really think about why we exist. So if it does get a little bit philosophical, just know we're heading to a really practical place. So dig down deep with us and go through there, because if we answer the question about the purpose of the church, then I think what you will also discover is your very own purpose for living. Each person's individual purpose for existing. Why am I here? What am I doing? It will help you understand that because if we can understand collectively what we're doing as a group of Christians, then drill that down into your own individual lives and it will tell you what you are doing as an individual Christian. Perhaps you have come here at the invitation of someone. Perhaps you have more recently found that your own life may lack a little bit of meaning. You've set goals for yourself. You have aspirations of what you want to achieve. College students, you've set career goals for yourself. You've got a plan in place, what your major is, then what your career will eventually be, what your job will be, who you're going to marry maybe, who will you have kids, and all of these kinds of different things. But then at some point, you have to stop and take a step back and go, but why? Why am I doing all of this? The answer to the question, why am I here and what, in my, what is my purpose, is not a secret, believe it or not. In spite of what you may see on the bookshelves at Barnes & Noble, the secret to life, the secret to finding meaning, the secret to your purpose, in, it's not a secret. Paul actually lays it out for us here in Scripture. He's going to tell it to us in this passage, and I've really kind of already disclosed it, but... First, we need to see the groundwork that Paul is laying, and we're going to do that by looking at the last verse in our passage first before we get back to the beginning. The first thing that Paul's going to lay out for us is that God's people exist for His glory, period. God's people exist for His glory. Look at what he says in, in 1136, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things... To Him be glory forever. Amen. I think if there's one verse in all of Scripture that we are most in dire need of understanding, it's this one. If you dug down to the depths of the roots of Scripture, to the roots of creation, to the roots of our own salvation, to the roots of God's own motivation in the things that He does, if you dug down all the way to the depths of all of those things, you would find this verse right there. God loves Himself more than anything else He has created. God, let me say it again. God loves Himself 
more than anything else he created. To love anything else more than him, his own self would be to commit idolatry. God loves himself more than anything else he has created. And he created you to love him and give him praise. Not because he needed it from you. But because you needed it from him. He created you to praise him because for a creature to be truly happy is to praise its creator. Now, Paul says here in this verse that all things, that means seen and unseen are from God. All things seen and unseen are from God, meaning all things have Him as their source. They're from Him. He created all things. He is their Creator. He says they're through Him, meaning that they all hold together by Him. By Him all things were created, and by Him all things hold together. Your existence at this very moment is due solely to His will and authority over the created order. That's the only reason that you're sitting in a pew right now. That's the only reason that you're standing on this earth. The only reason you don't vanish in an instant is because His will is holding you in place. He says all things are to Him. In other words, meaning they are for Him. All things are built for Him, meaning He is the goal of all things. And the conclusion of that, Paul says, is that therefore He is to receive glory from all things forever. In other words, all the rivers of the created order all flow in His direction. Everything is made through Him, by Him, and for Him. And He receives glory from them forever. All things exist for His pleasure and continue to exist because He holds them together by, strictly by the power of His own will. He owes nothing to no one. Since all things are from Him, all things owe their existence and their value to Him. But that means something very important for you. You were created for His glory. You are included in all of that that Paul lays out there. You are created for God's glory. Now, I'm almost positive that there's more than one person in this room that has absolutely no idea what it even means to be created for God's glory. In fact, it's sort of a strange statement when you stop and think about it. I didn't say you were created for His love. I didn't say you were created for His mercy. I didn't say you were created for His grace, for His wrath, for His holiness. I didn't say any of those individual things. In fact, I said you were created for His glory because being created for His glory would be like saying all of those things at once. God's glory is the sum total of all His perfections. God's glory is the sum total of all His perfections. You were created then to reflect all of His perfections. You'll often see this described in the Scriptures. If you read uh, in the Old Testament in particular, you'll see uh, all of this described as God's name. He'll say that He does things for His name. Or He'll say, for my name and for my glory. These two, name and glory, are really, for our purposes this morning, virtually synonymous. He does things for His name. He does things for His glory. His name is the sum total of His perfections. His glory is the sum total of His perfections. You were created to reflect His name. You were created to reflect His glory. You were created to reflect back to God His own nature, His own attributes, and to reflect His nature to the rest of creation. Both back to God and to the rest of 
the world around you. If you can imagine, I know that that starts to get a little bit philosophical and starts to get a little bit heady, but if you can imagine with me for just a second, take a step back from that and think back to the scene in the Garden of Eden prior to Adam's fall. All right, we're back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have yet to sin. I want you to think about the character of Adam and Eve. Think about who they are as people. Think about their character. They're righteous. They're loving. If they had been parents, they weren't yet, but if they had been parents, how would they parent? They wouldn't get angry. Not unrighteous anger. Not, I'm going to kick you out and beat you kind of anger. They wouldn't do that at all. In fact, they would be just parents. They would exercise justice, the justice of God for their children. They would always do right by their children and always do right by each other. Now, I know it's difficult if you take a step back to really even think about what that scene would have even been like. It's hard to imagine what it would be like to reflect perfectly as perfect image bearers of God, to reflect back God's own character to him like a mirror. That's difficult to think about. But that's what it would have been. They would have been a perfect mirror of the character and nature of God, and they would have reflected that back to God himself and to the created order around them. As God looked into the mirror of humanity... He would see the image reflected back to him of himself. And as those mirrors interacted with other creatures around the world, let's say they have tons of kids and the kids have kids and there's lots of grandkids and lots of everything around the world, there's lots of people around the world. As they interacted with each other, they would reflect God's character to the people that they came in contact with. Everyone would be reflecting the character and the nature and the glory of God to each other. Just think about that for just a second. So the earth would have been filled with God's glory, yes? God shines down. If you imagine like a ray of light, he shines down to the mirror of humanity. They're reflecting back his character, but they're reflecting it to everyone else as well. The name, the glory of God, and then all of a sudden it it permeates the entire earth. That's what you were created for. Sometimes when we hear it like this, God loves himself more than anything else. God created you to praise his name and to glorify him. Sometimes when people hear it put like that, they say to themselves, well, this sounds like narcissism. That sounds like he's just a narcissist. You're telling me God is some kind of divine narcissist in the sky and he just wants other people to tell him how great he is? That the reason I'm created is to inflate his ego? Is that what you're telling me? That's what I'm here for? Because we think about our own kids. How narcissistic would it be if I said, I created my kids to reflect back to me my own character? Now they do reflect back our own character. And when we see it, we go, oh, is that what I really look like? (laughs) And they do it sometimes very accurately, unfortunately. But see, narcissism is sinful in you and me because in reality, here's the secret, we're not that awesome. In reality, we really do look pretty ugly And narcissism is a sin because we think we're up here and we're actually down here. But if you were truly perfect, then to reveal to the beings that you created your perfection, that would be mercy and grace and love, not narcissism. But it's not as though Romans 11.36 is the only verse that's telling us this. 
The Bible is actually screaming this to you on nearly every page, but it becomes very clear when you get to the prophets, particularly the prophet of Isaiah. He makes it most clear. God tells us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 5 to 7, he says, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now he's speaking to the nation of Israel as they're going into exile in Babylon and he's commanding them to not fear. You're, you're in exile, you're out of the land, you're in exile and you're, under, you're basically in prison, but don't be afraid. And he tells them just before the passage that I read that he's done a lot of things for them. And that's the reason they shouldn't be afraid. I've called you. I've I've called you out. You're a nation because of me. You shouldn't fear because look at all the things that I've done for you. I've taken you out of Egypt and so on and so forth. He tells them he's not going to abandon them. But then in these three verses, he says, I created you for my glory. That's also why you should not fear. Because I created you for my glory. Now why should Israel give, you know, gain any comfort from God telling them, look, I, I, I created you for my glory, therefore you shouldn't fear. Because of how resolute God is in receiving the glory that He is due. That's why they shouldn't fear. That's why that's a comfort. Because I am dedicated to my own glory. He tells them just a few chapters later in Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. That I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Going into exile and being reminded that they were created for God's glory gives Israel comfort because God will never give His glory to another. It's His. And it's always going to be His. And He is going to get it out of His creatures. So He makes it clear that He does this in verse 9. For my own name's sake. I do it. So when it comes to the reason, though, why Israel is being judged, well, why are they being taken out into exile? He says in Ezekiel 36, 17 to 23, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, whenever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, peop- in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of His land? But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Hold on to that for just a second. You realize how often he brings up the the profanity of his holy name. That's the reason he's about to act. Hold on to that passage in Ezekiel. And just remember it, because we're going to come back to it. Israel, he says, was created for God's glory. And when God's glory is at stake, when God's name is at stake, when His name is being profaned because of their blatant immorality, He's going to bring down judgment on them and exile them into Babylon. And so we saw 
in Romans, all things are created for His glory. We see Israel as a nation in particular is created for His glory. But by the close of the Old Testament, by the time this train runs its course in the Old Testament, Israel is without a prophet and without the voice of God in their ears for 400 years. They are in complete and total silence from God for 400 years before John the Baptist shows up on the scene. Though they were, cre- they were created to reflect the image of God, they certainly do a very poor job of doing that. But now let's go back to our passage in Romans and let's go back to the very beginning of that passage. And let's see what Paul tells us there. He's going to tell us that our salvation is a gracious gift of a wise and glorious God. Our salvation is a gracious gift of a wise and glorious God. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given to Him a gift, given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? So let's, let's first understand why Paul has come to this, this series of three verses here where he's essentially breaking out into song and rejoicing over what God has done in bringing salvation to him and to the people around him. Uh, in the most recent chapters of Romans, going all the way back to chapter 9, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans might be the hardest three chapters in all of Scripture, the most difficult to work through and understand and think through. But in those, and we're not going to plumb the depths of Romans 9 to 11, I promise you that. But what Paul has done in Romans 9 to 11 is he's asked himself a series of questions. He knows that there are questions in the minds of his audience as they've read chapters 1 to 8. And he gets to chapter 9 and he starts posing to himself questions that they must be asking, they must be thinking. And the questions vary, but they particularly relate to the, majority, the fact that the majority of the Jewish people don't believe in Jesus the Messiah. And the question is why? Why would God do it this way? Can I trust that the Lord is still faithful to His promise if it seems like the Jews are not following in suit with believing in Jesus the Messiah? What, what do I really do with that? And He gives them some answers, but... There is admittedly, even in Paul's mind, some mystery as to what God will yet reveal in the ages to come. But broader than that, as we back up for the last 11 chapters, Paul has gone to great lengths for his audience to understand the sheer magnitude of what God has accomplished by saving his people. If you really consider what he's done, the content of Romans up to this point where Paul breaks out into song in 1133, Paul has been proving that you are not saved by works through the law, but you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only way you are saved, whether Jew or Greek. And so this naturally brings us to a point where we have to ask, even as his audience, well, Paul, i got to wonder, why would God do it this way? Have you not ever read Genesis? And you go, it seems like a really weird way for God to go about accomplishing his purposes. Why would he do it that way? To which Paul ultimately gets to, Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his paths. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of God or who could be his counselor? Or who has given to God that he should repay? So Paul is essentially posing the question back to his audience. Which of you could suggest a better way? Which of you could put God on the couch and be his counselor? Which of you could take God to school and say, you're my pupil now. You need to learn from me. This would have been a better way to do it. Which of you are willing to put yourself in that position? There is mystery to our salvation. Some. 
in spite of what has been revealed in Scripture, a great deal can be known. But still there is some mystery in the mind of God. But such is the nature of being the creature rather than the creator. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His thinking is beyond ours. But I think it would serve us well for just a moment to just consider for just a second exactly how this picture of salvation has actually come to us and how it's come together that we too might say with Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. First, you'll remember that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. As we said just a minute ago, they were mirrors uh, reflecting back to God His own nature. And I said a few weeks ago that, that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And Moses tells us that in Genesis 1. And he then goes on to tell us that humanity was created. And what it means to be made in the image of God is to exercise dominion over the earth. There's a lot of tools that go into that, but our purpose was to exercise God's rule and His reign as essentially His vice regents on His behalf around the world, spreading, as it were, His glory around the earth. We were to rule and we were to reign. We were to reflect His glory, His name, His nature to the entire created order. However, instead of executing their role as mirrors of God's glory, Adam and Eve, what does the text say? Sought to be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to be the image. I don't want to be the reflector of the image. I want to be the originator of the image. I can be like God myself, knowing good and evil. And so all of humanity then, at the moment where Adam falls and sins, all of humanity then becomes a funhouse mirror. Not reflecting the glory of God, but refracting the glory of God. Distorting the image of the glory of God. And Paul says that's exactly how we should understand our sin is a distortion of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. You all know it very well. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The problem with you and I is precisely this, that we have distorted His glory as a funhouse mirror in front of Him. We were created for His glory to reflect His nature to those around us and back to Him in worship, and yet we continually abuse His name. We distort His image. As an example, His love that we should emulate becomes lust. Once it hits the funhouse mirror of our heart, it gets refracted into lust. His justice becomes hatred in us. Vengeance. That's how we get justice now. We, we, we avenge. His perfect wrath becomes anger and abuse once it hits the funhouse mirror of our heart. His joy in created things becomes covetousness in our heart as we desire them to replace Him as God. All of the wonderful attributes that God gave to us that are part of His very nature, that we are meant to reflect back to Him in worship and to the created order around us become refracted and warped as our sinful nature takes effect and it becomes a mere distortion of all the things that He created us to be. But this is where things get really terrifying. If you ask almost anybody in the world around you. What does it take to get to heaven? Almost everyone is going to respond back that you need to be a good person. That that's what it takes to get to heaven. Well, you need to be a good person. 
And the thinking goes, when you get to the day of judgment, you're going to stand in front of God and he's going to weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds against each other. And whichever one weighs more will determine your outcome. I've had so many people tell me this. I cannot tell you how many. In fact, if you ask just the average person the gospel, that's likely you're going to get some answer in regards to that. Somewhere around there. The problem with that way of thinking is that God judges us against his own character, not against our own character. God doesn't judge us at how good we are at being a funhouse mirror. He judges us on how good we are at being a mirror. How do you reflect my glory? Now, are you really going to tell me that you can stand before God on judgment day you in your funhouse mirror kind of ways stand in front of him and go, no, that's, that's what you really look like. Yeah, your nose is really that big. Yep, yep. Problem's you, not me. No, nope, that's what you really look like. Can you honestly tell me that there is no covetousness in you? Can you tell me that there is no lust in you? Can you tell me that there is no bitterness in you? Can you tell me that there's no anger in you? Can you tell me that there's no greed in you? All of those things are warped and sinful distortions of the glory and radiance of God. You, friend, I've fallen short of the glory of God. And so have I. Although there was no hope for you or I to accurately, accurately reflect God's glory, try as we might, God sent His Son. You may know this story. I hope you do. But, God, but the Bible describes Jesus in particular ways, and I think it's important that we pay attention to it, as a perfect mirror of God's glory. The Bible tells us about Jesus in Hebrews 1:3. He listen to the words that he uses. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Paul says this in Colossians 1:15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Does that sound familiar? He's a perfect reflector of God's nature and character. Why? Because he is God himself in flesh. He died in our place on the cross in spite of his perfect Reflection of the glory of God. He died in our place on the cross, suffering there the wrath of God in our stead. He was punished for us. Even though he didn't deserve to be, he was punished for us. Even though he perfectly upheld God's glory, he took the wrath reserved for us on his own shoulders. He died and was buried, and on the third day, God raised him from the dead. But I want you to, for just a second to really consider what God has actually done here. Remember that passage in Ezekiel that I told you to remember. So if you didn't, it's your fault. Remember that passage I told you to remember. Israel has defamed God, has defamed His name, has distorted His glory, and God says that He's going to vindicate His name. I'm going to do this. I'm going to vindicate my name. But do you know how He's going to vindicate His name? Do you know what Ezekiel says right after that? How He's going to vindicate His name? This is how He does it. In 36, 24 to 27, listen to this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness is, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's how he's going to vindicate his own name. He's going to put the Holy Spirit inside his people. What has God done to the funhouse mirrors of his glory? What has he done? He has put his own spirit inside the mirror. A very imprint of his nature. He has put that reflector inside them. And the result of the spirit coming in and changing the heart of the believer is faith in the atonement that Christ has purchased for them on the cross. And it's actually repentance then following that. How do we know that? Because he actually says in Ezekiel 36, 31, the result of this, he says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. You'll repent. He causes his spirit to dwell within us. We repent of our sins and slowly over time, our nature begins to be conformed no longer into the distortions of the glory of God, but into reflections of His glory. So then, what happens as a result of the Spirit's indwelling in our lives? Paul tells us in Galatians 5, and 23, some of you have this memorized, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit that He has put within us slowly over time begins to flatten the curvature of our mirror and flattens out all the distortions so that we actually reflect the glory, the character, the nature of God both back to Him in worship and to the created order around us that we begin to radiate His nature. But do you understand that we grow more like Him? Our distorted funhouse mirror, it, it begins to flatten. And our, our, as we practice the regular means of grace that He has given to us. And how is that? You already know. How are His people created? By His Word. Reading His Word, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness. Slowly that mirror begins to flatten. We pray, which conforms us to His will. Slowly, that mirror begins to flatten. We assemble together as a body for worship in which we praise Him together through singing. Slowly, that mirror begins to flatten. We admonish one another and correct one another in sin. We encourage one another. Slowly, that mirror begins to flatten. And then one day, Jesus comes back and flattens it all out. Till we are perfectly made in his image. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom, knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways, how inscrutable are his paths. Don't you see? We exist as a church. Not for our own glory. We don't exist as a church for our own glory. We don't exist. What that means is we don't exist to be a well-oiled machine that really puts on an engaging worship service every week. We don't exist for everything in this room to be perfectly smooth. That is the danger of having a stage and people who stand on it. Do you know that? We think of like noises that happen in the sanctuary. We think of, or, or the place where we gather, we think of like distractions and things like that as problems. This is a living room. We're a family. 
We don't exist for Facebook likes and Google reviews. We do not. That is not the reason we come together. Because all of those things tell us about how good we are. Look how smooth they do things there. Look how great their music is. The ambiance that they create is just amazing. It makes me really feel God. We live for God's glory, and that is our purpose. But this is why, going back to some of the things that we've talked about in this series, this is why the local church comes together. This is why we exist. It's not so that we can have friends, believe it or not. What you do when you create your own friends is you go find people that are just like you, don't you? Yes, you do. You go find people who are interested in all the same things that you're interested in. You go find people who have the same, kids the same age you've got. But look around the room. We're not all on the same station in life. We have actually no reason to be together, to be honest with you. Some of us are different as night and day. We have no reason to be together except that we have one chief common interest. See, that's how the secular world views community. You come together based on mutual understanding, mutual station life, those kinds of outward appearances. We come together so that we can together be shaped into the image of Christ so that like Christ, we too as a body may reflect the glory of God into the community around us. So that through us, all the nations of the earth will be blessed since we are Christ's body. And as the church reflects God's nature, as we, as we come together and we actually reflect God's nature, His character, His attitude to the world around us, what happens when the outside world, when the secular world sees that? Well, one of two things. Either the church becomes a really compelling community to them and they want to be a part of that, or they are repelled utterly by it. One of the two is going to happen. Because we begin then to demonstrate together, as we grow more and more in the likeness of Christ, we begin to demonstrate that God really is magnificent and marvelous and matchless. But it's only when we realize that our purpose is to live our lives for the glory of God that any of that has any meaning. This is also why church discipline. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but this is why church discipline, as we discover in our midst, people who actually don't have the Spirit of God in them, they are perpetually a funhouse mirror, and they're never inclined toward repentance if they don't have the Spirit of God in them, and they're quite happy to exist permanently as a funhouse mirror and a distortion of God's glory, then it's our responsibility to make them aware of it and effectively remove them from membership. Because that is not what Christ created us to be, and we have to make that clear both for us and for the world watching around us. We will no doubt, all of us, fall into distortions of His glory, willful distortions of His glory. No doubt, daily we do this, we struggle with this. But this is why we're called to repent, is precisely because of that. Willful, unrepentant distortions of His nature are signs that His Spirit doesn't actually dwell within us. This is why elder leadership which I mentioned last week. The direction of the church is to be shaped by people whose mind is on leading people perpetually to the glory of God, not on creating calendars of events, structures, smooth operations, and plenty of buildings. It's on leading people and pointing them perpetually to the glory of God by intervening in their lives. This is why we order the worship service the way we do. Why the opening of the worship service is a call to worship. You notice that? It's a call to worship. Why? Because we want you for one moment 
to consider God's glory instead of your own. So the scripture passage, if you pay attention to it, is about how great God is. The opening song is about how great God is. The opening several songs are about how great God is. But then we move into a call to confession. And why do we do that? Because I want you to, we want you to consider your distortions of His glory. That your sin is a distortion of what He's called you to be. But then right on the back side of that, we give the assurance of pardon because we want you to consider the grace He has given to you. I want you every week to consider, oh, how magnificent, marvelous, and matchless is His love. How inscrutable are His ways. How, who, is, who could be His counselor? Every week I want you to think about that. And then the sermon, which is to give God's Word to us to help us understand it, that we might be conformed now to the image of His Son through the power of the Holy Spirit that He's put within you. That we may live to the praise, honor of His glorious name now and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for all that You have done in Christ in making us what we did not have the power to be on our own. We praise you for that wonderful gift. Father, we know that we fall short, and I know that there are plenty in this room who have, at least at one time or another, felt guilty of sin and perhaps continue to deal regularly every single day with these distortions in their own nature and character. I pray that you would testify to them of your goodness to them and that your kindness would be a call to them to repentance. Pray that your nature, your glory, would be the desire of our heart that we would live for the praise of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.